Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast, where we are figuring out what kind of men we want to be and pursuing that vision relentlessly for the rest of our lives. My name is Keaton Tucker, and I want to thank you for listening. Today, we are talking about fighting for what you believe and a quote from East of Eden. Then we will go into our comments section, and we'll be finishing with today's gospel coming from Luke chapter 8. If you are new to the podcast or you just haven't hit that subscribe button, go ahead and do that now. And if you would be so kind, leave a five-star review. Please leave a comment or a review on your favorite podcast app. All positive comments are appreciated. If you leave a comment on YouTube, there's a chance that you will be featured in the comment section of the podcast where I respond to comments left on YouTube. Some people leave hilarious comments we all need to see, and some people leave hilarious comments that we need to refute and to laugh at. All right, like I said, today we are looking at a quote from John Steinbeck's magnum opus, The East of Eden. This is a book that you probably had to read in high school or you were supposed to read in high school and you just didn't. It's not a book I was supposed to read in high school. I had to read things like The Alchemist and Night and books like that, and I really wish I would have gotten to read this in high school, although I probably would not have actually read it. I would have just pretend I read it or gone to Sparknotes or something because I was so lazy in high school. But I, so I read this book for the very first time last year and it immediately gripped me. Like I can't explain how good this book was the very first time I read it. I still remember it. And it's a book I think that every man should read multiple times in his life. It's a story about men and brothers who hate each other, but who reconcile. It's a book about how all of that affects generations. It's a book about how good and evil play out through generations, how the story that came before you affects you today. It's a fantastic book. I found a quote online that gives a great kind of summary of it better than I could do by myself. And here's what it says. It says, the book was written in 1952, and Steinbeck called it his magnum opus. The novel explores themes of depravity, beneficence, love, the struggle for acceptance and greatness, the capacity for self-destruction and of guilt and of freedom. It ties these themes together with references to and many parallels with the book of Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. I have to do a podcast on this particular quote, and I was reviewing my reminders and saw it. And I was like, okay, that's the episode I'm going to do today. And this quote, it's a long quote that when I read it, I had to reread it several times. Like I had to just go and go and go because the first time I read it, I didn't understand it, but it moved me. It like spoke to me. And as I reread it, I began to understand what Steinbeck was saying in this quote. And it seems So Steinbeck, when he writes, occasionally he has these long quotes at the beginning of chapters or just sections that seem to have nothing to do with the book or the characters, but on further reading, they have everything to do with it. It just kind of feels random and powerful, but still random. But then later upon rereading, you see how it fits into the book. This is one of those quotes. And this quote, I think, fits our world today and what our response should be to the world around us, especially as men. So, you know, I underlined, I highlighted, I was like, what what part of this quote I'm going to share? And I just decided I'm just going to share the whole thing. And I want you to remember that this quote was written in 1954. And I want you to think about how it correlates to today. Because if Steinbeck could see our time today, I think he would be shocked 
based on the quote, because it will seem very prophetic in nature. Now, this quote is poetic, and it is a literary masterpiece. I would not expect to understand it all right away. It's like, you know, all masterpieces, they are difficult to understand. Even if they move you, they're difficult to understand. So if you don't get it at first, that's okay. You can buy the book, reread it, or you can just re-listen to this section, because I'm going to read the entire thing, and then I want to pull some stuff out of it. Here we go. Sometimes a kind of glory lights up the the mind of a man. It happens to nearly everyone. You can feel it growing or preparing like a fuse burning towards dynamite. It is a feeling in the stomach, a delight of the nerves, of the forearms. The skin tastes the air, and every deep-drawn breath is sweet. Its beginning has the pleasure of a great stretching yawn. It flashes in the brain. The whole world glows outside your eyes. A man may have lived all of his life in the gray, in the land and the trees of him are dark and somber. The events, even the important ones, may have trooped by faceless and pale. But then, the glory. So that a cricket song sweetens in his ears, the smell of the earth rises, chanting to his nose, and dappling light under a tree blesses his eyes. Then a man pours outward a torrent of him, and yet he is not diminished. And I guess a man's importance in the world can be measured by the quality and the number of his glories. It is a lonely thing, but it relates us to the world. It is the mother of all creativeness and it sets each man separate from all other men. I don't know how it will be in the years to come. There are monstrous changes taking place in the world, forces shaping a future whose face we do not know. Some of these forces seem evil to us, perhaps not in themselves, but because of their tendency to eliminate other things that we hold good. It is true that two men can lift a bigger stone than one man. A group can build automobiles quicker and better than one man, and bread from a huge factory is cheaper and more uniform. When our food and our clothing and our housing are all born in the complication of mass production, mass method is bound to get into our thinking and to eliminate all other thinking. In our time, mass or collective production has entered our economics, it's entered our politics, and even our religion, so that some nations have substituted the idea of collective for the idea of God. This is my... In my time is the danger. There is a great tension in the world, a tension towards a breaking point, and men are unhappy and confused. At such a time, it seems natural and good to me to ask myself these questions. What do I believe in? What must I fight for? What must I fight against? Our species is the only creative species, and it has only one creative instrument, the individual mind and the spirit of a man. Nothing was ever created by two men. There are no good collaborations, whether in music, in art, in poetry, in mathematics, or in philosophy. Once the miracle of creation has taken place, the group can build it, they can extend it, the team can take it, but the group never invents anything. The preciousness lies in the lonely mind of a man. And now the forces marshaled around the concept of the group have declared a war of extermination on that preciousness, the mind of man. By disparagement, by starvation, by repressions, forced direction, and the stunning hammer blows of conditioning, the free roving mind is being pursued, roped, blunted, drugged. It is sad suicidal course of our species that we have seemed to have taken. And this, I believe, the free exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. And this I would fight for, the freedom of the mind to take any direction it wishes, undirected. And this I must fight against, any idea, religion, or government which limits or destroys the individual. Okay, that's the quote. And so what I want to do, I want to go through this, and I just want to pull out some big themes from it so you can understand it. And then I want to then get to what I believe is the most important part 
of this entire quote. So at the very beginning, it says, sometimes a kind of glory lights up the mind of a man. It happens to nearly everyone. Prior to the glory lighting up the eyes of a man, everything in life seems dull, gray, (laughs) dark, somber. The events, even the important ones, they may have trooped by faceless and pale. So what what he's saying here is, most of your life feels kind of boring, gray, somber, like nothing matters in the world, but then something happens that lights up, lights you up. It's a glory. It's something you're willing to give all of your energy to. You're ready to fight for. You're ready to stand firm for. And it everything gets better. A lot of times this happens when men fall in love. You when you imagine the girl that you fell in love with, your your wife that you fell in love with, everything for those first few months, everything was better. The air was sweeter and clearer and crisper. Your job had never been better. Food had never tasted better. You had never had um, as much fun as you had had with this woman who you had fell in love with. Love will do that. But so will glory, the glory of a man when he has a mission to accomplish. And once, until a man has something to fight for, something he believes in, and something to accomplish, life seems kind of somber. And I really think that's why a lot of men end up hating their jobs because they're just trying to fulfill a role. They're just trying to get a paycheck. They're just, you know, doing, the world has made it that way for them. And I think that's why a lot of men end up hating it. But then the glory comes. It says, a man pours outward a torrent of him, and yet he is not diminished. When you find that thing you can stand for, that thing you can fight for, the thing you can believe in, no matter how much you pour outward, your energy doesn't go anywhere. And then he says, I don't know what will, how it will be in the years to come. There are monstrous changes taking place in our world. We're going to come back to that. But then he gets into this. He says, when our food and our clothing and our housing are all, all born and the complication of mass production, mass method is bound to get into our thinking and to eliminate other thinking. In our times, mass or collective production has entered our economics, our politics, and even our religion so that some nations have substituted the idea collective for the idea of God. This, in my time, is the danger. So he's writing in 1950, post-World War II, where mass production in the United States has just taken off and it has become a very consumeristic culture. Very, very consumeristic were the 1950s. And that's when he's writing this book and he's foreseeing, like, what happens when mass production type thinking gets into every other part of our life? Especially, and I think, of our religion up and to the right, growth, 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 numbers, 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 numbers. You'll even hear well-meaning people say, well, I care about numbers because numbers are souls and we want to get as many souls into heaven. Okay. But what has happened in Christianity, especially in the evangelical non-denominational churches, is they have done everything they can to get high numbers, high, high numbers. They'll do anything to get it. Like you'll, they'll do these salvation calls that have, no mention of the gospel, no mention of sin, no mention of repentance, no mention of the kingdom, no greater story around the earth. There'll be a sermon about marriage or dating, and then somehow they'll just throw in Jesus at the end and be like, hey, if you want to become best buds with Jesus, or if you want to date Jesus, you can raise your hand, and then they'll be like, one, two, I see you, if I see you, I see you, five, five people. Oh, five people gave their life to Jesus. And you're like, what? It, because it has become part of our thinking. These churches, these like, dude, you you have 2,000 people in weekend attendance, and yet you're claiming that 4,000 people got saved at your church every week? Where'd all those people go? What happens when mass thinking gets into everything, and it all has to be up and to the right? Grow, 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 more, 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 more. 
what happens when it gets into every other part of it. It becomes our entire filter. The only way we can filter the understand the effectiveness of something is if the numbers get higher and higher and higher. You can think about this in uh, in terms of subscribers on YouTube. Think about this in subscribers on YouTube. The best channels, the most effective channels, the growth channels, they have a million, two million subscribers. But a lot of the channels with the most subscribers don't have necessarily anything that gives depth. They're purely entertainment. But the more, 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 more mass production has affected everything. The best way to have a, a great YouTube video is to cut it every two seconds so that the human mind is like captivated by the if you cut the video every two seconds, you can't it's very hard to look away. And what this does is it allows people to grab your videos to grab your attention for longer and longer so that you stay watching the videos. And it's only because it's cut every two seconds, but that diminishes your ability to focus on anything for longer than two seconds, which is why you zone out every time your wife talks or every time the preacher talks or every time you can't focus anymore because YouTube in its mass production thing has stolen away your ability to focus. Rant over. Okay, then he says this, because remember he says, I don't know what will be, how it will be in the years to come. There are monstrous changes taking place in our world. And then he fast forward. There's a great tension in the world, tension towards a breaking point, and men are unhappy and confused. I think this is true all the time. When things are heading towards a breaking point, whether it's in your home life, your marriage, your job, or in the world at large, when you can see things going towards a breaking point, men become very unhappy and confused when they feel incapable of or refuse to step up to the plate to solve the problem or to participate in solving the problem. You as a man were designed to solve problems and to take responsibility. You can think about this when, if you're talking to your wife, you know how she just wants you to listen. She wants you to listen first and you're like, no, there's clearly a problem here that I can solve so we don't have to deal with this anymore. I think that's because it's part of our nature to see a problem and to solve it. I think God designed us that way. And when we do not step up to the plate, when we are passive, we get confused and unhappy. And when other men refuse to stand up with you, you get confused and unhappy and you just wish someone would stand there with you. It takes one individual to step up to the plate for other people to do it. That's what he goes on here. We're the only creative species, the individual mind and the spirit of man. Nothing was ever created by two men. There's no good collaborations, whether in music and art, poetry or mathematics. Once the miracle of creation has taken place, the group can build and extend it. And I think this is what Steinbeck is getting at in this whole quote, that there, there's a problem that you see. There's a tough time in front of you that you can see. It's either in your home, it's in your family, it's in your work, it's in the world at large. There's something that you see that you can step up and solve, and that is the glory that you are going to feel. Everything has felt somber until now. You've got a battle to fight a, that where you can wage a war, where you can do something that brings some glory and life to your body, and only you can do it. And when you don't, you're forfeiting that glory and you're becoming confused and unhappy. And he says, it seems natural to me at this kind of time when, when things are confused and unhappy, when the world is going towards monstrous ends, it seems good to me to ask, what do I believe in? What must I fight for? And what must I fight against? Why are those the three questions? What do I believe in? What must I fight for? What I must fight against? Because you as a man, you need to know what you believe in. You need to know what you would fight for because you will not come alive in your soul and in your spirit until you know what you believe, what you will fight for, and what you will die for. 
that's where the glory comes from. Like, I hope you get this fire in you. I hope that you can ask yourself the question, what do I believe? What would I fight for and what would I fight against? Because then you have something to do. Until you have that in you, you have nothing to do. In that quote, Steinbeck, he then goes, towards the end, he answers the questions. He says, this is what I believe. This is what I would fight for. And this is what I would fight against. And I think you as a man need to ask yourself, in this current cultural moment, this current climate, this current Christian climate, like whatever is going on in the United States, whatever going on in your family, whatever's going on in your work, whatever, you need to ask yourself, what do I believe? What is it that I believe really? Why do I believe it? Once you have established what you believe, you need to ask yourself, what would I fight for? Hopefully you will fight for what you believe. And what would I fight against? Because what I promise you, what you believe has an enemy and it's coming against you and you need to be willing to fight against it in order to fight for what you believe. You need it and it will be a glory to you as a man. Men are looking for other men to follow. So once you step up to the plate, once you stand there, once you take a firm stance for a long time, then you will find people sur- who are surrounding you and who are with you and who can actually make this vision or this fight happen. You and I live in monstrous times, just like Steinbeck did. You and I live in monstrous times. Pick your thing. There's at least 50 issues in our time that are monstrous, destructive, stealing, killing, and destroying. Families are in shambles. Teenagers are lopping off their parts and destroying their souls. The truth has dissolved into relativism and strong men have been ostracized. I do not know what is to come in the future, but to assume things will be fine if you sit by hoping the world of your childhood will return, that is naive. The world of our youth is gone. You grew up under what remained of the protection of Christendom and it is no more. And you, young man, old man, it is now time in this monstrous time to ask yourself, what do you believe in? What must you fight for? What must you fight against? There's a lot to believe in. I myself, I could make a list of every possible topic that I believe in and why, but at the root, at the core, at the base, there must be a simplified statement of what you believe. And then for me, what do I believe in? What would I fight for? What would I fight against? What is the single most important thing for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. What do I believe in? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I believe in all that the one church teaches and has given to the world since its inception in history. I believe in that church, and I believe in the families of the church, and I believe in the marriages that come from the church, and I would do anything to fight for and protect the marriages, the families, and the church itself. What I just quoted is the Nicene Creed, at least part of it. I omitted the long part about Jesus because it's very, very long, and I omitted it just to keep it fluid, but I still believe it. The Nicene Creed was established in 325 AD by a council of Christian leaders to protect the church from fracturing into heresy. There was was heresy happening, and a bunch of church leaders got together and said that we need to come up with a concise statement about what we believe, and if you cannot submit to this belief, you're no longer a Christian. That happened in 325 to protect against heresy because there were people who were claiming that Jesus was not God. There were people claiming that Jesus 
was not the way that he was. There were many heresies abounding, and it was going to fracture the church as people you know, went astray. And so these, these Christian leaders, they get together, and they're like, okay, we need, just like in Acts 15, they had a church council. In 325, they had a church council to decide what are we going to have for unifying beliefs of all Christians? And that's where they came up with the Nicene Creed. At my last church, I heard a preacher, his name's Manny Arango. I heard a preacher at my last church, and he's got a doctorate in theology, and he says, he's, he's very fiery, former charismatic preacher. He says, you do not get to decide what Christians believe. That has already been established before you were born. You get to accept it and submit to it or not be Christian. That's his direct quote. He, he reads the quote, of the the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed that I just read, to a bunch of 20-somethings who are deconstructing their faith and deciding what they want to believe and what they don't want to believe. And he says, you don't get to decide what Christians believe. That has already been established before you. You can either submit to it or not be Christian. Yes and amen to that. I will, and I will fight for the faith that was decided in long before I was born, long before you were born, and you're wondering, was there a creed before that? Yep, there was the Apostles' Creed. And you're like, what about the Scripture? Well, the Scripture came from the councils in those times, and they've been reaffirmed by church councils throughout history. The church gave you the Scripture, and the church and the creed is pulled directly from the Scripture. That's, you know, that's just church history. And I will fight, and I will defend, and I would give my life for that one church and for the unification of that one church. What must I fight for? I must fight for the unity of the faith. The divided church must become one again. I must fight for the proclamation of the truth coming from the one church that forever changed the world. And I must fight until we all come to know the fullness of the faith. If your church, by the way, affirms the statements up there, they are part of the historical church. They are. That that means they're part of the historical church, no matter what country you're in. If they do not, then they have departed from the faith in some regard and they've made Christianity in their own image. And that is very, very common. Christianity made in its own image has pride flags on its windows. What must I fight against? I must fight against anything that seeks to destroy that one church set up by Jesus Christ and the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. I'll fight against enemies from within and without, ideologies and attitudes that would destroy that one church because this is what I believe, this is what I would fight for, and that is what I would fight against. I know what I would fight for. It has taken me a long time to figure out what exactly would I fight for, but when it finally clicked within me, a glory came into my body that I cannot explain, and I'm weary of trying to hold the fire in, and I will not do it any longer. And I hope that you find that for yourself. It doesn't need to be what I believe. It doesn't need to be what I would fight for. It doesn't need to be the burden that I have been given. I think they come. I think they're God ordained, but it needs. I hope you find the fight that you can fight. I hope you find the glory that comes from that kind of battle. I hope you find that in you. I hope you figure out what you believe and know what you would fight for and what you would fight against. And then I want you to ask yourself, are you prepared to do so? And if not, what could you do to prepare? Let's see if I can transition from the super intense talk I just gave you to the comment section on YouTube. I was feeling a little fired up back there. Thank you for... Uh, let me feel that I get a little intense. I know I am, I'm kind of intense. Um, but so, uh, the comments section, I actually, uh, I have a comment from a video I'd put out last week. So I made a short video praying for gun related violence in the United States. And I did that because I had read an article from the daily wire about mass shooting or a number of shootings that had happened over the Labor Day weekend. So several weeks ago and it reading, it broke my heart. There were children who were killed grandparents who were killed. There were just so many people killed and it it broke my heart 
And so I give this little three-minute talk on why I'm making this video, why I think we need prayer. And then I spent six minutes praying publicly for myself, for us as a people, and as a nation. And gun, I'm fully aware that gun-related violence is a contentious issue. Everyone has an opinion on it, including me. I have opinions on it. And I didn't want to share my opinion, and I didn't once share my opinion on YouTube. I didn't share any possible solutions because I don't have one. I don't have one because as I read in the video, Genesis 6 teaches us that the human heart is inclined towards evil and towards evil only, and it's perpetually filled with violence. The reason I don't have a solution um, is because you can't, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with gun-related violence because the human heart is inclined towards violence. It always has been. Genesis 6 was written long before there were guns. So I read Genesis 6 on that video, and on that video, and I actually just want to read it to you again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And I skip down a couple of verses because it talks about Noah's being, Noah being righteous in his generation. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So the reason I released this prayer video is not to figure out what to do about gun legislation, because I don't think that's actually going to do anything. And I, I think it would just make our problems worse if you tried to legislate gun laws that took away people's guns. I think it would make it far worse. If you want to know part of my opinion, I'm not going to give you my whole opinion. <clears throat> but the thing that concerns me most is the increasing level of violence in the United States that is taking us to closely matching the rest of the world. If you have ever traveled abroad, you know that the rest of the world doesn't feel nearly as safe as the United States. Now, part of that is because language barriers and part of that is because we're in foreign countries and you don't know, you just not, it's unfamiliar. But also part of it is that the United States has historically just been a very, very safe place. Relatively speaking, like you, where you, you can go outside your door and you don't have to worry too much. And then there's other parts of the world that are unbelievably dangerous. Most of the Middle East, no matter where it is, it's just very dangerous to live there. Most, a lot of Africa is very dangerous to live there. A lot of China is very dangerous to live there. I'm sure it's true of India. I'm sure it's true of a lot of places because the human heart is inclined towards violence and it is unbelievably corrupt. And because we have lived in the United States, uh, we, we're a little naive to just how evil people can be. And I think we're actually starting to pull back the veil a lot and to see what the human heart is fully inclined to. And that's why I felt we must pray. And I think one of the leading factors to national safety is, is the righteousness of the people. I think that's a fact. The righteousness of the people is plays in part to the safety of a people. As we be, continue to become unrighteous in our character, violence is going to continue to increase. I, I promise you, it's going, to, it's going to continue to increase. People are going to continue to become unrighteous in their character. They're not going to repent. Safety is going to diminish and violence is going to continue to increase no matter what laws are passed. And prayer and repentance is all that we really have left, which got me to this comment that I got. So this this isn't a funny comment. This isn't a sad comment. This is, this is a comment I don't know what to do with. I got one comment on this video because <clears throat> um, <laughs> not many people want to watch this kind of video at this time. But it, the comment says, bro single-handedly just ended gun violence. Praying hands, a man on praying knees, a water gun, and then, a got, then the flexing arm. These are all emojis. And then hashtag Trump 2024. 
So let me just, let me just read this comment again. So I, I put out this sincere video on prayer, and this guy just puts, bro single-handedly just ended gun violence. Praying hands emoji, praying knees emoji, water gun, flexing arm, hashtag Trump 2024. I literally cannot tell if this man is being serious or sarcastic or what is, what's going on with this comment. So I clicked on his YouTube channel to see what he was like, and he's wearing a t-shirt. I'm not kidding. He's got a MAGA hat on. He's got a t-shirt that has the N-word on it, followed by the phrase, for Trump, and then nothing else. And then the videos that he has on are also confusing because it's police videos, things I will, it's titled, it's actually, excuse my French, it says, shit I will buy when I'm rich, and then a couple of the rap song playlists. Like, I have no idea what this guy is. He's got like two subscribers on YouTube, and this is the comment that he had left. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this comment. And I don't think I'll ever be able to tell if this dude is being sarcastic or if he's being serious. I don't, but I do know one thing. Um, Prayer is good. The guns are worse than water guns. Flexing your arms, I I don't get. Trump 2024, stop pretending that you can, a hero is going to turn the United States around. It's not going to happen. You change the world by getting on your knees and praying and repenting and then going from there. Like that's where you have to start. The the conservative belief that we can elevate a strong man to solve all of our problems while simultaneously refusing to engage in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our school systems, and and any of the other culture things. We'll just nominate one person, hope that he can take care of it. That is that is a, a stupid, stupid thing to do if you care about the righteousness of a nation. I don't even care what your political party is. Like, I, I, I really don't. I want you to be Christian because this is a Christian podcast. Be Christian. Repent, pray, seek God, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, and all other things will be taken care of. Do that first. Do that in your home, and things will get better. All right. Today's gospel comes from Luke Chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. And here's what it says. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter it may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known or come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Okay, so to understand this portion of the gospel, I think we need to go up a little bit to get some more of the context because it comes at the very end of a long parable that Jesus is teaching. So at the very beginning of the parable, beginning in verse 4, it's the parable of the sower. Great crowd is gathering, and Jesus, he says a parable. He says, a sower went out to sow in a seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and it grew up. It withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell along thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell along good soil, and it yielded a hundredfold. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then moving on, verse 9, he says to his disciples, To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Okay, then he goes on to explain the parable and then we get to today's gospel. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it on its bed. Okay, so that's about seeing. 
but he puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor anything secret that will not be made known and come to the light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So you have a little bit of seeing, you have a little bit of hearing in this parable. And what I think Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand is that if you hear and you understand, he has explained the parable to him. If you hear and you understand the parables of Jesus, it is because the Holy Spirit has allowed you to hear and to understand. He has unveiled your eyes and unplugged your ears, and now you are responsible for what you have heard. If the light has come to you and you choose to hide it, you're going to be responsible for hiding it and not letting it shine before others. God gives understanding to those who seek so that they will let their line, let their light shine before others. It's a great responsibility to those who hear and see. If you understand something about the kingdom of God, about the gospel, about the church, about church history, about any of it, and you choose to hide it, you will be responsible before God for hiding the light that he has given you to share. I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to his disciples, like, I'm giving you specifically a large responsibility because you know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. They don't. They aren't as responsible as you are. And you and I today, if we come to an understanding of the gospel that is rooted in, the, in what the church has always taught, if we, have the, if we come, to, uh, come to understand the fullness of the faith, which I think every man should try to do, you and I are also going to be responsible for what God has given us. We're going to be responsible, and we cannot hide that. We need to do everything we can to pass that along to the people around us. If you seek and find and you hold it fast with a good heart, and you, you will bear fruit with patience, so don't give up too quickly. God has enlightened your eyes for a purpose. You may have one person that you can share with or five, or you might have 10 or whatever. Maybe you have 1,000 or 10,000. You're going to be responsible for the little bit that God has given you. And if you're not, you're putting a covering over your light. Don't cover that light and don't give up. Most of us cover our lights by giving up too quickly. Don't give up too quickly. Bearing fruit takes the patience of a lifetime. It takes persistence. It takes a willingness to shine your light by who, to whoever has entered your small little space. That's all I have for you today. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. If you want to dive deeper into the Institute of Men, become a subscriber on Substack for exclusive content. If you didn't like this content, just pretend you didn't listen. That helps us out too. Tune in Wednesday for Wisdom Wednesday. And until next time, I'm Keaton Tucker, and this is the Institute of Men podcast. Mm -hmm.